Welcome to The Private Project. Welcome back, everyone. Today I'm speaking with Jen Munch, an independent conservator in New York City. She specializes in the treatment of modern and contemporary paintings. Jen is a 2019 graduate of the three-year art conservation graduate program at Buffalo State College and holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Art from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. She previously worked at the private practice Contemporary Conservation in New York City and as a contract conservator at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Jen has practiced paintings and objects conservation at museums and private practices, including the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, the Phillips Collection, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, Gianfranco Bocabene Studio, Incorporated, and Rika Smith McNally and Associates, among others. Jen is active in the American Institute for Conservation and currently serves as the chair of AIC's Contemporary Art Network. In this interview, we discuss Jen's transition into the private sector during the outbreak of COVID, how she started and grew her business in New York City, and the lessons she's learned in bidding for federal contracts and in business classes, including why the IRS may audit you and a great tip to prepare for that process. We also discuss the challenges of accreditation for the field of art conservation. And now here is my interview with Jen Munch. So welcome to The Private Project. Um, starting with my first question, how did you discover the field of conservation? I've actually known about the field through the lens of library and archives preservation since I was a child because of family members working in academic libraries, um, especially my mom. She's a special collections librarian for the City University of New York. So I would hear a lot around the dinner table about stabilization, digitization, media migration, that kind of thing. And I learned about art conservation when I was in high school because one of my teachers took interest in me and was very kind. She suggested I speak with her daughter, who was a jewelry conservator who had trained in the FIT program. So I did speak with the daughter. I learned about conservation. I learned that chemistry was a big part of it. And as a teenager, I just didn't have a big connection with chemistry. So I kind of put it on the back burner. And I came back to conservation in college. I was reading conservation papers, especially as they related to ephemerality and um, materiality, things like that, you know, material choices. I was in art school at the time. I was working with a lot of latex. I was working with other ephemeral materials, uh, rose petals, like things that would degrade very quickly. So yeah, that's that's kind of some of my knowledge of the field. And I didn't decide to enter the field until somewhat later. And I see also that you have a BA in visual art from Tufts University. Can you talk about the kind of artwork that you were making at the time? Uh, sure. So I have a BFA from School of the Museum of Fine Arts, which um, now is owned by Tufts University, but at the time was a separate school. And I took my academic classes at Tufts, but all of my studio art classes were at School of the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, which is next to the museum. I was doing sculpture, I was doing painting, I was working in all kinds of materials. I did a lot of glass. I was very proficient working in different media with glass, especially glass blowing and casting. And then I started doing a lot of casting with latex. I was casting onto my own body parts and then building assemblages, sculptures, where I would stuff these latex skins and make just different sculptures that were like very bodily and organic. And I did a lot of work with really just different materials. They really encouraged us to be very experimental. So yeah, I was casting onto old leather that was degrading and it would just leave gorgeous, beautiful 
marks. I would make books out of out of those. I would make wall hangings. So I was working in a lot of different materials, textiles. That's so fascinating. I wanted to ask because in reviewing your CV for the interview, I noticed that there are some experiences you have with painted sculpture and with paintings. And I wondered if that came from the type of art that you were doing at School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And that sounds correct, like you're working for not only paintings, but also sculpture forms. And it seems very interesting, the type of work that you were making. That's that's amazing. Oh, thank you. I, I do think there's certainly a, a relation. I was making a lot of painted sculptures myself. I'm very comfortable with painted sculptures. Um, and I'm comfortable with both paintings and sculpture. So actually, it was hard for me to choose which direction to go in the field, because in the United States, you do have to pick at a certain point in your graduate training, you have to pick your specialization between objects, paintings, paper. I think that's a unique challenge in modern and contemporary conservation. Sometimes the lines between kind of the divisions that you learn in grad school kind of blur together. Like, is it an mm. object? Is it a painting? Um, which we can touch on a little bit later. But I want to <laughs> go back to before grad school. So when did you decide that you wanted to be an art conservator? And can you talk about some of the pre-programming experiences that you had? Yes. So after art school, I did a few things. I wanted to be working in the creation of artworks. I was working for different artists as an assistant and I was doing fabrication. I was also working as an art handler. And as an art handler, I had one exhibition at Harvard at the Graduate School of Design where I was working alongside a conservator who was from their library. And I realized while working with her, while installing these archival objects, I just really liked her sensitivity, the way that she talked about the materials we were using and why we were installing things certain ways. I really enjoyed all of our conversations we had about conservation, about art. And I realized there was sort of an affinity. It seemed to just click, even though she was a library and archives conservator. I realized that actually I should talk to her about this field. Her name is Irina Gorstein. And she spoke with me about the field at some length. And then she actually helped me to find my first opportunity in the field, which was at the Harvard Peabody Museum. That's an objects lab. It's an archaeological and ethnographic museum. So I was at the Peabody actually as a volunteer one day a week for about two years. And how I did that was I got all of my employees where I was an art handler to agree that I could work a more flexible schedule. And I had like either Thursday or Friday off, whatever it was to go and volunteer. And I would then work on the weekend for, for most of these exhibitions I was installing as well. So yeah, I was still working generally full time. And then I was at the Peabody, which was incredible because I, I was just exposed to a wide variety of cultures and approaches to preservation of various different materials. We had a lot of delegations of individuals from different cultures coming through. And because it's a teaching collection, it was important to make a lot of these objects that were at the museum accessible for uh, different cultural members and, of course, different members of the Harvard community as well. I started off on projects like rehousing. They taught me how to make boxes and mounts um, that you could use for storage and housings that you could use for storage or display. And I worked on such a wide variety of things. There were gut skin objects, wood, bone, ivory, oh, basketry, a lot of feathered materials, a lot of organic materials. Yeah, things from all different cultures. I got to learn about different cultures, which I hadn't been exposed to. There was also a lot of emphasis on safety there. So in that collection, there are a lot of objects that have been treated with heavy metal pesticides. And that's something that we had to be aware of. So there was, you know, always being very meticulous about washing your hands and wearing gloves when working with objects like that. So yeah, I was at the Peabody for two years. And in the middle of those two years, I ended up being hired by 
uh, the city of Cambridge to help out with their outdoor sculpture collection. So they had a really robust conservation program that focused on their public art collection. So it's living artists, most of it's outdoor sculpture, and then some of it's inside government buildings and schools. A lot of them were bronzes. So it was washing, waxing bronzes. So going around with a, a small team doing that. And that was a really great experience for me, especially because the conservator in charge had a, a working relationship with a lot of those artists. So I got to hear a lot about the prefabrication challenges and discussions with the artists, the different types of material choices. It was it was really valuable for that reason. And that conservator, uh, Rika Smith, also hired me to work for her private practice. So we would go around and work on a lot of outdoor sculptures for private clients, for different government agencies, and also for university collections like the MIT collection. While I was working for Rika, you know, I was really cobbling together a lot of different jobs. I was still working as an art handler. I was still making my own art and uh, occasionally selling my own art. I had an art studio of my own. So I'm at the Peabody, I'm doing the summertime thing, like three days a week for the summertime thing. Then I also got a job at the Gardner Museum uh, one day a week as a duster. That was just taking care of the collection, collections maintenance. And it was, oh, that was such a fantastic job. I loved it. Just getting to be so close to all of these really wonderfully fabricated objects. Um, it's a really special collection. And while I was at the Gardener as a duster, their full-time technician position opened up. So I applied for that. Rika helped me create a portfolio and my conservator colleagues who I had worked with at the Peabody also helped me quite a bit with this. I was very thankful that I was selected for this job because it was a really good position that trains you for graduate school. At the Gardner Museum, I had an opportunity to go around in the galleries every morning because part of my job and how they had enough hours for me to get health insurance was that I opened the shades in the galleries every morning <laughs> for the reason that a, a lot of the art, artworks and objects are installed very close to the windows. So it was it was for safety reasons at that time, you know, to avoid object damage. So I was going around every day opening the shades and I would also uh, do condition checks and see what small things needed to be done. The bulk of my work was spent working on a variety of objects and one or two paintings. So I got to work on metals. I got to learn laser cleaning for stone artworks and steam cleaning. I was doing testing of different paints, uh, gallery paints. So pyrolysis tests to detect sulfur, which is really nice because if you can detect sulfur in paints, then you know that it's not going to be the best as it off gases because it could cause issues for, um, for objects, especially metal objects. While I was there, I was also taking my chemistry classes at night at the community college near me. Then I very luckily got into conservation graduate school. Wow. Sounds packed. So many different things going on, but what a robust pre-program experience. That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about maybe why you decided to go to graduate school, what program you decided to apply, and a little bit about your experience in the actual graduate program? Yeah. And I actually think that's a great question. Why did I choose to apply to graduate school? Because in this field, you don't always have to go to graduate school. You have to go to graduate school in certain specialties if you want to be taken seriously as a conservator and be eligible for museum jobs. But, you know, I could have stayed a technician for my whole career. Like there are plenty of other things to do. You could go into collections care. So I chose to apply to graduate school because I wanted to be a conservator and I wanted to be the type of conservator who could have uh, the option to work in museums, the option to work for myself. I wanted that comprehensive training that you get in graduate school. You kind of have a, 
a bit of a baseline and uh, you also have some respect from the community. So I applied to the three American programs that had both objects and paintings because I was undecided between those. And I wanted to apply to programs that were fully funded. I applied to NYU, Buffalo and Delaware. This was my first year applying. I had two interviews. It was Buffalo and Delaware and I was accepted to Buffalo, thankfully. So that's where I attended. I loved it. I absolutely loved my grad school experience. Yeah, I, I feel very grateful to have had it. And so during graduate school, how did you decide between paintings and the objects? Or did you know at the time that maybe in contemporary art, maybe the lines are a little bit blurred, so you have the opportunity to work with those two materials? What were you thinking at that time? Yeah, what's actually what's interesting is I knew going into graduate school that like modern and contemporary has always been what I've been most drawn to. I like all of it, but I did have to choose. So I, I thought about it very carefully. I thought about what I was drawn to, and I chose projects that would help help me decide. And I asked to work on a very intense and complicated painted sculpture as my object project. It was a painted soft sculpture. Actually, it was like a life-sized human figure of a woman that was sitting on a wicker stool and it was almost entirely nude. So it was a really strange sculpture. Actually, when I spoke with the owners, this was one of their prized possessions and it was actually like a family heirloom. It's only from the 1960s, but it was owned by the parents of the owners. So it had all this wonderful context to it, but it also had these really strange issues because it was nude. The children of, of the owners uh, were ashamed of it. And so the, <laughs> the owners hid it in an attic for a number of years until the children were old enough. And unfortunately, while it was in the attic, it developed mold. A lot of the paint was flaking and cracking. It was in a, a really, really bad state of deterioration. That was a great opportunity for me to work on this object that was in such bad condition, but was so valued by the owners, like so beloved. And then for my painting, I chose a very poor condition painting with a lot of interesting issues. It might've had fire damage. Those two projects really helped me to decide. I love working on paint paintings. I love working on objects. If I had to choose, and I chose paintings. Oh my gosh, that sounds like such an interesting object to study and treat during graduate school. Wow. So much to think about. So in graduate school, you take on projects that have these contemporary modern materials with unique challenges. And then can you talk about the internships that you had during your graduate school experience? Yes. So for my first internship, I went to the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. I was there with Patty Favero and Lily Steele. It's a small museum. It's America's first museum of modern art. So they have a, a modern art collection that's really beautiful, really unparalleled. And um, they have a lot of Washington color school, color field paintings. While I was there, I got to work on three paintings. And I also got to do a study of treatments that have been done by Gustav Berger historically. So I got to evaluate the treatments he had done and see how they had held up, which was a really wonderful experience. And I also got to participate in the early stages of a study into the use of PVOH gels in conservation. That project didn't end up going forward, but it, it was interesting for me because I got to work with scientists from NIST on that, as well as with Patty to make mock-ups and start working on, on those materials. So just getting to hear how the scientists approach conservation and thought about conservation was very valuable. So the paintings treatments were terrific. I got to do all kinds of things with Patty. She let me assist on other projects as well. I got to do a cami lining for the first time. I got to learn how to make a padded backing board. I got to do an edge lining for the first time. And I got to do, oh, one of my favorite things, I got to do a bread cleaning, uh, which is a technique that is really only used on color field paintings. So cool. Okay. So you had your experience at the Phillips and then what was another internship that you had? Yeah. Okay. So the second summer I went back to Boston where I had been before graduate school and I worked in the private practice of Gianfranco Pocobene, who also had been my boss at the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. So he has 
a private practice separate from the museum. And I did that because I wanted more private practice experience. And I knew that he had some interesting projects. So he had some, like, it was like a church uh, mural project that we worked on. It was painted walls and ceiling of a church in Newport, Rhode Island. And I got to work on the stabilization of what was remaining and then basically repainting of the things that no longer were there. So that was a really terrific experience. And then working on a number of easel paintings back in his home studio as well. So just seeing the type of workflow he did, you know, he was very generous with answering my business questions as well, as other people have been throughout the years as well, certainly. So I did that. And then for my third year, I went to the National Gallery of Art. I was in the paintings conservation department at the National Gallery of Art, which, wow, that was a really, really wonderful experience. I'm just so grateful to have had that because it's just such a wonderful community of scholars and experts in all types of art disciplines. So being in a, a department like that was really special for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's the largest paintings department in the U.S., so there were a lot of different conservators there to learn from. So even when my own uh, supervisor was busy, there were plenty of other people that I could ask my questions to. And yeah, I got to do a variety of things. I got to participate in the loan program. So um, I wasn't going out and doing loans myself, but I would do a lot of uh, examinations of artworks that were going out on loan and meet with the people that were going with the loans. And also I got to do a lot of work, uh, basically, basically talking to other people, you know, helping with their research and um, working on my own research collaboratively. There was a lot of collaborative work that I really like. Every morning for about an hour before the galleries opened, I got to go around and do condition checks in the gallery and do very minor treatments as needed. So that was really terrific because a collection like that has such a rich history you know, not only art history, but also history of conservation. So I got to see what had been done previously, how it was holding up. That was just such an invaluable experience for me. Yeah, so I had some really terrific projects there. Like my main my main projects were a real variety. I had a Dutch panel painting. I had several modern artworks. I got to do scientific analysis along with the scientists there. One of them was a, a very in-depth project that I, I did a lot of microscopy with Melanie Gifford, who's an expert microscopist. It's a very good learning experience in every way. And they gave me a lot of leeway. Like uh, if I wanted to go to do some professional development, go to some conference, they always said yes. You know, if I wanted to do a certain type of project, they would find it for me. All in all, a very good professional experience. That sounds like an ideal internship. I want to go back because you briefly mentioned when you're working for John Franco that you were interested in getting some private practice experience. At that time, I believe that was in your second year, were you starting to think about private practice for yourself after you graduated? What were you thinking at the time? I've known for pretty much my whole time in this field that half of our field is in private practice and that it is an inevitability or a great possibility to have um, private practice experiences, at least at some point in your career. I didn't know at the time whether I'd want to be in a museum or or private practice. I still like both worlds, actually. So I really wanted to just be prepared, even though I had worked in Rika's private practice, which was public art. John Franco's was very different, and it was paintings. So I really wanted to have paintings, private practice experience. Yeah. Is there any ways that you kind of prepared for that possibility of going into private practice when you were a graduate student? Or is that something that you really did after graduation? I definitely did things to prepare for going into private practice while I was a graduate student. So during my third year, while I was at the National Gallery of Art, I knew that I was going to be uh, taking a contract 
after graduation. So that's, that was my first experience working for myself in conservation. So while I was still in school, I did things like I created an EIN, which is an employer identification number. It's separate from your SSN. What else? I got a business bank account. I got myself set up in the SAM.gov, which is the federal database that you have to be registered in as a federal contractor. Also during my internship, there was an entire month when I wasn't able to work at the museum because of a government shutdown, which was very unfortunate. So during that time, I worked on things like creating a website for myself. But I think at that time, I made some business cards and just never used them. Okay, so you had your third year internship at the National Gallery of Art. It was wonderful. And then you said you had a contract set up after that internship. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of your work after graduating from graduate school? So I was very, very lucky that my department at the National Gallery of Art was so supportive and they thought of me when there was an opportunity for a contract position. It's not very common at that institution. So it wasn't something I expected, but it was just a really great opportunity. And I was honored, frankly, to even be considered for it. So I stayed on. I was there on contract to work on one specific painting. It was a very large painting by the artist Giacomo Tintoretto. He was a Venetian painter. That very massive painting required an enormous amount of varnish and uh, old retouching that had discolored and aged removed. So I spent six months removing varnish. There was that much varnish. I got to learn a lot about different varnishes because there were some very interesting varnishes on it, some of which were experimental and only used for just a few months at a time. So that was really neat. While I was doing that, I was interviewing for jobs at different places. I could have stayed on the contract for longer, but I fulfilled my first contract. I could have uh, renewed, but I took a, a position in New York City at one of the large private practices that only worked on modern and contemporary art, which I thought was a fantastic idea. And I got to work on both paintings and sculptures at that practice. And I started at my new position, like February 21st, 2020. So I was there about three weeks and then COVID happened. So the majority of my time actually at that studio was during COVID. Very strange time, but I was very thankful in a way to have colleagues during COVID because I, if I had stayed on as a contractor in DC, I probably would have just been home the whole time during COVID until I don't know when I would have gone back. It took a while for museums to go back to work. Whereas in the private practice, I was back to work much more quickly. I haven't talked to anyone about getting a federal contract. Would you be able to outline that process and some of the steps required to apply for a federal contract? I can give advice based on my own experience, which is only with two instances, right? I had one contract that I had and one contract I was bidding on. And I'll say also, I have no experience with state contracting. So yeah, there are different ways to get federal contracts. Most of them are done as requests for quotes or requests for bids. That request will go out to often the public, but sometimes it'll just be selected people. So in the instance of the one that I bid on, I was invited to bid by the person who I would have been reporting to. And they sent basically their, their request to bid to several conservators who would fit the parameters of what they were looking for. If you're doing a bid, you're going to have to put together basically a big packet, like a big long document where you answer all of their questions very specifically, because you're going to have to say, this is the type of business I am. This is exactly what I will be doing on this project. This is how I'll fulfill it. This is the rate I'll be charging you. If the contract goes on past a year, is my rate going to change? You have to say yes or no. For bidding, you do have to have an hourly rate. And so it's important to have that. And you are not allowed to talk to other people who are bidding about their rates. That's something you should know about. Uh, you just have to have your rate set in stone and know it going forward. Yeah, you get a big long packet and you just have to be very specific. 
And so after this position at a large private practice in New York, you then opened your own private practice. Can you go a little bit into why you wanted to start your own business and the steps you took to make that possible? I decided to work for myself and I've done that before. Those prior experiences really helped me to feel confident that I could have my own private practice. And so I started taking referrals as they came in. They they were trickling in mostly from conservation colleagues in other cities and then from colleagues in this city, including like curators and museum professionals I haven't even met, which was really nice gallerists. So I started taking referrals. I didn't have a workspace to begin with. I had just a corner of my apartment where everything was collapsible. I had a little collapsible easel. I had all my supplies and bags. Yeah, I would just buy small amounts of materials at a time as needed, like different cleaning solutions, tacking irons. I bought myself a color checker for photography slowly just acquiring materials as I needed them. And then sometime into working for myself, I decided I really needed a space to work in. My clients had been asking me like, you know, you really need to get a studio. And I was saying, yeah, yeah, I know I did. So that was good because it also frankly saved my clients money because a lot of them had been renting out spaces for me to work in, like in warehouses, for example, or I would come to an apartment or to a gallery to work. But now that I have my own dedicated space, it actually expands a lot of what I can work on. So I can take treatments that take a little longer, treatments that have to use small amounts of solvents. Those are things I couldn't have done in the viewing rooms. And can you talk a little bit about how you found that space? And did you have to make any modifications in order to to perform treatment in that space? So yeah, I started looking for space quite quite a time before I took one. So probably with about five months lead time, I was I started looking just to see what was out there, what the possibilities were. I had very clear ideas about exactly what I wanted space-wise. I wanted a private space with a door that locked. I wanted to be in a professional building with other arts professionals around. I wanted fairly good security. So So I didn't want like a front door of the building that was just open. The building I'm in has some pretty good security. I wanted a window. I wanted walls that went all the way up to the ceiling. So I had people looking out for me. I had um, an artist was basically going to different studios in their neighborhood and was asking different places. But strangely enough, the place I'm in now, I found on Craigslist. That's perfect. I want to jump quickly also to clients because you mentioned that when you first started taking work for yourself, you were getting referrals from curators, gallerists, other conservators you had Mm -hmm. never met before. Can you talk a little bit about just how those references came to you and how you've built up your client list since then? I'll say that it's a pretty small list still, but um, generally it would be conservators who I've worked for. Some of them sent me actually their own clients because they would need a conservator here in New York City. I had one person actually who found me on Google, which was really interesting. Yeah, and then I had clients who I would do conservation treatment work for who then referred me to other people. So for example, gallerists who had collectors who worked with them, they were referring me to their collectors or to an artist that they represent. I've done work directly for artists as well. So it's all been pretty organic. You know, it's just like people tell each other. Awesome. And you said also that you made business cards, but they weren't as effective maybe as you thought that they might be. Other than sort of getting referrals organically, are there any effective strategies that you found to be useful in trying to obtain new clients? Or has it really been mostly organic kind of word of mouth referrals? So far, all but one of my clients have been organic word of mouth referrals. Yeah, even actually even so I go to I go to different community events around my my area. There are a lot of artists in my neighborhood. So I go to open studios. And even artists that I've met at open studios um, have referred me to to people that they know. But I don't do any other traditional marketing. I mean, not yet. So something you could think about if you want anyone who has artwork to contact you, 
you could do search engine optimization on your website. That is something I know how to do, but I will say that I haven't had a good success rate with having people find me through Google because the people who have contacted me, a lot of them are just looking for the lowest price. And that's not the market I'm trying to target at this time. Oh, that makes total sense. How did you choose to open your practice in New York? Is it because you were already there from your last position? And then in addition to that, can you go in a little bit about the landscape of conservation in New York City for people who aren't familiar with the area? As you said, I was already here. I'm from here. My family's here. And also a lot of the art market is here. And especially for modern and contemporary, a lot of galleries are here. A lot of artists are here. So it felt like a natural fit to just stay. And then, oh, as far as the landscape of private practice in New York, I would say private practice, it does vary um, by city. You know, the type of work, the type of client you're going to have. Here in New York, many conservators primarily serve the art market. So that is that they're working on art that's going to be up for sale. And it could be the primary art market where the work is being sold for the first time. Maybe the artist passed away and there's a, a foundation. Um, I worked on some pieces where that's the case, where the art hasn't been shown before and it does need a little bit of a conservation treatment or it needs a conservator to make it exhibition ready. So it could be sold for the first time or exhibited for the first time. Then there's also the secondary market, which is where collectors might have artwork and they've decided to sell it for some reason. So a lot of art here really is tied to commerce. And there are some very large private practices. There are very small private practices like me. New York is very diverse. So there really is room for everyone. There's room for everyone in every specialty here in New York. If anyone listening is thinking of coming to New York, go for it. There's plenty to do here. Excellent. I'm curious when you mentioned that for some of the work that you're getting is for art that's being prepared to go on the art market, or that's an influence in the type of work that you're seeing. I'm wondering how that, if at all, influences the type of treatment or treatment expectations that clients will have compared to conservation and like a museum setting, like at the National Gallery of Art and the Gardner Museum. Are there any differences that you've noticed, again, in terms of treatment expectations the client has or any other differences? No, it's actually a great question because there are such major differences. I'll say one big difference between working in museums and working in private practice sector, especially in the context of people attempting to sell artworks, is that they are a little more concerned with aesthetics in a way that I found surprising when I actually first entered the field here in New York. I'm very good at in-painting. Anyone who goes into paintings conservation, you're very confident about your in-painting. But in a museum setting, you often are only working to a certain level. Like You don't have to have it be entirely mimetic, like super, super perfect, because the viewer is only going to get within three feet, maybe, or there's really good uh, lighting that maybe isn't at extremely high levels. Well, if I'm working on an artwork that's going to an art fair, it's under extremely bright lighting. And the people are going to get very close because they're looking for any evidence of damage. They don't want to see any imperfections if it can be helped. So I had to up my game here a little bit in terms of working on like in painting of, I don't know, monochrome paintings, things like that. It has to be perfect, perfect for my, for most of my clients. Yeah. Especially when you can't predict the lighting environment that it's going to be shown in in the future, like in a museum setting, right. you kind of have a known of what it's going to look like. You could maybe, once you're done in painting, put it on the wall, see how it looks, make corrections. Whereas you might not have that opportunity to look at it again if it's being shown in an art fair, like you said. So that's very, very challenging. Right. Yeah. Metamorism is a, a real concern. But yeah, it is even more so a consideration with modern contemporary because with older art, Damage is more considered to be just a part of the artwork. It's considered part of the life of the artwork. Whereas for newer works, 
the art book isn't supposed to have had much of a life. I'd like to pivot now briefly to insurance. I'm curious what type of business insurance you have and how does that align with the type of work that you're doing? Yes. So I have uh, quite a bit of general liability coverage. I have a medical coverage. Like if someone were to slip and fall and have to go to the emergency room, my, my insurance covers some of that for one person. So it's fairly limited. That's, That's the bulk of my insurance. I also have some property damage insurance that covers my landlord in case I mess up the property. So say I did $100,000 worth of property damage, my landlord's covered, which I don't think is necessarily standard for a conservator, but my landlord required it to move into this building. And I liked the space. It was not going to be too much money to get that insurance. So I did it. Awesome. I'd like to pivot now to expansion and a little bit of budgeting. So you started your private practice in July, 2021. I'm curious what sort of equipment and tools you might've purchased since the start of your business. So since starting the business, yeah, I've bought little tools at first, especially since I was working out of a corner of my home. So a tiny folding easel, I bought uh, tacking irons, cleaning solutions, things like that. When I moved into the space I'm in now, I changed it in just the smallest ways possible. I installed a photography setup. So including a backdrop that I can raise and lower. So the space is fully convertible. I have some lighting equipment. So I bought some lights and stands and a tripod all used. I bought it. I bought a camera at that time as well, also used. And the only modifications I've made to my space, I hung my own security camera. And I also made some small curtains for covering uh, areas where light gets in so that I could do ultraviolet photography. I bought a, I bought an easel, a large easel, in addition to my small one. I bought a lamp that I use for in painting. So it's the type that it's an LED where it changes color temperature and has a really high CRI for color accuracy. And looking at my work in different lighting conditions. I bought some metro shelving. I've actually found a lot of my equipment as well, which is really nice. So in New York, it's it's like this, where you can just be walking down the street and you find an amazing table or another artist in my building was actually giving away some equipment. So I have some really nice, very robust power strips and things like that. Awesome. And do you have any equipment you would love to purchase in the future that might expand the services that you can provide? Do you have any ideas on that? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't mind buying a suction platen. That would be really nice. I like using those. That would be terrific. And I, I would like to upgrade my vacuum at some point, a little bit unwieldy, the size of it. And I might want to buy just some small things like Tetra Demuth has a nice set of tools that I might want to buy that are used for like tear repair. Awesome. I'd like to transition now to your rates. Do you charge hourly or bid according to individual treatments and or clients? When I'm working for individual clients, I'll give them a number basically for the whole project. I'm not going to say I'm going to spend 16 hours on this. I'll say it's going to cost X amount of money and often it'll be a range. I'll give them a, a low and a high estimate. Uh, The reason I do that is because while I do try to stick to the low estimates and I'll tell them that I try to stick to the low, it gives me a little bit of leeway and they've already okayed a larger amount of money in case something does come up. And things do come up sometimes in treatment. You can't always predict how it's going to work. Awesome. And what is your vision for your business? How would you like to expand or grow your business in the future? So I don't anticipate bringing on any employees or getting a larger space anytime soon, but I do want to have more contract work with museums and I want to work with with more living artists, estates, foundations, all of it. I am very interested in all of that. I don't have a, a ton of experience working with insurance. I have some, but that might be nice as well, just to have more experience in that realm. I love working with small galleries. Um, so that's a really nice thing. I'd love to just keep getting better connected here in New York City. 
I'd like to transition now to the several business classes you've taken throughout your career. Could you describe the most practical and useful advice you've received from those courses? So I've taken a number of business classes, several of which were in college, and four of the business classes I've taken have actually been targeted directly to artists or people working in the arts, which has been especially beneficial. So if you have the chance and they're thinking about starting their private practice, definitely there's a lot that you can get out of it. There are a lot of parallels to being an artist and to being a conservator. While I was in college, one of the business classes I was in taught by a tax accountant who was an artist herself. And she and the other accountant that she brought in to speak to us about taxes, I would I would have to say their their advice was probably the most valuable when you're working for yourself um, and you're itemizing your expenses. When you're first starting out, you might be operating at a loss. You might be declaring a loss on your taxes. But something to be aware of is that declaring a loss on your taxes makes you vulnerable to being audited by the IRS. And when you're audited, it's a it's a big process and you're gonna have to come up with every receipt for you know every expense that you're justifying. And I have been audited, not in my current business, but when I was working for myself as an artist and doing fabrication and art handling, I was audited twice actually. So that was such good advice because I was prepared for an audit. <laughs> every single expense I was taking, I was prepared to tell the IRS exactly why it was justified for my business and was a legitimate business expense and not me taking a, a vacation, to, I don't know, buying things that weren't for my business. Oh, okay. I have another piece of advice. Every jurisdiction is different tax-wise. Even within the city I'm in, Manhattan is different than Brooklyn. Brooklyn is different from Queens. When I'm looking for information on how to do things, you know, you you have to look by your jurisdiction. You should only take classes if they're very specific to how to operate a business that are specific to your state. Wow, that is such good advice. I have never heard from anyone about the potential of being audited, but it makes so much sense, especially Mm -hmm. if you're reporting a loss, which I think a lot of people encounter when they're first starting out in their business. And the fact that the jurisdiction is different, even in the city. Wow. I knew it varied between states, but that's fascinating that even in a city, it might be different depending on where you are. Oh, the other thing about being audited, I want to mention. So I actually at the time wasn't operating at a loss. The reason I was audited the first time was because I had such a difference in income from year to year. It was like a $20,000 difference in income because when you're working on different, you know, freelancer contract projects, the work ebbs and flows. Sometimes you might have a huge chunk of work that comes in that is in January, you know, and so your December that was slow, suddenly you have a huge difference in like year to year, what you have going on. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's something to be aware of. Yeah. And the jurisdiction thing really is really is big. Awesome. And how are you preparing for retirement? If you are? Yes, I, I do think about retirement and it's important for me to save for retirement. And that's something I've I've actually thought about since I began working. I've actually been working full time since I was a teenager. So I've had retirement accounts started for, for quite some time. Right now, what I have is an SEP IRAs, which are a way that self-employed individuals or freelancers can put money in before you file your taxes. And uh, so that's something you do every year. Um, I also have traditional 401ks. So those are, yeah, those are my, my primary ways of saving for retirement. And can you describe your support system? Who do you go to if you have questions about a certain treatment or a certain business question? I ask supportive colleagues, including my peers who I've worked with or people I met at graduate school. I ask um, my former supervisors. Um, I also have a peer mentoring partnership right now with another paintings conservator, which is really nice. That was actually set up through the CIPP, 
AIC's Conservators in Private Practice group. And we just started that one a month ago, but that's been really helpful for both of us because we talk about business structure, studio equipment, treatment questions, things like that. And then if I have other business questions, I have friends who are business people who I will also ask them how they do things. So how to use different features of QuickBooks or, you know, things like that. There's a lot of, there are a lot of things that you can ask other business owners that can also be helpful. Oh, and I'll also tell you like in terms of taxes, like I've had some strange tax questions. For example, in New York state, we have to, we have to collect sales tax or I have to be registered to collect sales tax. Most of my clients don't have to pay, pay tax actually, but it's, it's something that you have to do that's very specific to our area. And so I'll just call and ask the government, you know, I'll ask the tax experts when I have questions like about how to, how to do certain things. Sounds very supportive. I'd like to go now to work and life balance. Do you have any strategies for balancing work and home life? What I do is I have a business phone number and I have a personal phone number. And so when the phone rings for my business, I know that it's a business call and that gives me some time to decide, am I booked right now in my personal life? Am I able to put on my business hat? So that I think is the best thing for me because I do have clients call on the weekends. I have clients call at uh, unusual hours of the day. There might be something that that's happening that they're very worried about. They don't know if it's an emergency situation. So they call right away and I'm happy for them to do that. So if they want to leave a voicemail, I'll immediately call back, you know, as soon as I am available or feel that I'm in back in business mode. And have there ever been any circumstances where you chose not to take on a project? And if so, what were the circumstances that led to that decision? Actually, yes, I've actually turned down three or four projects this year, which, um, you know, it's funny, I'm just, I was just saying, oh, I don't want to turn down work. But actually, I've, I have had to turn down work. The first instance involved travel, like it would be it would have been a 10 hour drive, uh, while my baby was just too young to be away from me. So the second was a very large smoke damaged collection. It was the type of work that I just wasn't able to take on at the time I had too much going on. I was I was too busy. I also wasn't able to do all this remediation that needed to be done. I didn't even have my studio at the time. So I would have had to like either take it into my house, which I absolutely didn't want to do because it was burning plastic. Basically when plastic pyrolyzes, it turns into like really just absolutely super toxic things. So I couldn't have that in my home. Oh, I had a painting that unfortunately was too large to get into my building that I had to turn down because it wasn't the type of treatment that could be done in situ. It could only be done by the type of studio that takes extremely oversized paintings. And I've actually also talked clients out of a few projects as well. Yeah. So a client who comes to me with an idea for something that just isn't safe for the artwork. I've had a few instances of those where I, I just said, well, here's the likely outcome. And if you still want me to do it, you know, I can be involved, but here's the likely outcome and the artwork is likely to be damaged. I'll give an example for one of those. I was asked to help a contemporary artist roll a very, very large painting that was still wet. They were still painting it and it, in oil, they were painting it in oil and it had to go to another city. And it was so massive that it had to be, it had to be rolled. There was just no other way. I let them know the type of damages it was likely to have and that it would require some repainting on site. And, you know, after our discussions, they decided not to even send the work to the other city. That also touches on something that I've been thinking about too, which is private practitioners acting as negotiators, not only kind of educating the clients about the type of work that we do, our ethics, et cetera, but really these interesting circumstances like you outlined where you have to negotiate with a client who wants to do something that you as a conservator knows will likely damage the artwork. That could be very difficult depending on how stubborn the client is and you know, if there's money involved, all these different factors. So are there any strategies that you have when you encounter a client like that in addition to saying, 
you know, you want to do X. I anticipate that this type of damage is going to happen if you pursue this. Well, I've had this um, come up numerous times, many, many, many times Mm -hmm. that um, someone has a suggestion for what they would like to have done for an artwork. And um, unfortunately, from a conservation standpoint, it isn't what I would advise doing. In most of the instances, people listen to me as as an expert in conservation, and I'm able to discuss alternatives. And usually what I suggest as an alternative is what we go with. And I try to be, you know, I try to be a yes person, frankly, because they're asking for a reason. So I try to think of ways to make what they want possible. And if it's not, it's unfortunate, but I explain exactly why it's not realistic or or possible. And uh, if it's something that I know is possible, but I can't do it, I will absolutely refer them to the appropriate person. Absolutely. I'm curious also, what excites you or motivates you within your business? Um. Oh, all kinds of things. Well, I would say getting to know different artists and their bodies of work is always like, that's number one. That's absolutely my favorite thing. The amount of exposure to different artists. I'm just always so grateful for that, um, that facet of what we do. And what I do and that it, you know, it also, it also always resonates with me when I get to play a part in making a work exhibition ready, especially when it's an artwork that hasn't been shown before. And it feels very special because it feels like I'm doing my part to help an artist and their work, like participate in our, our collective culture. That, that to me is really rewarding and always motivates me. Yeah. I'd now like to jump to outreach. So you are the current chair of the Contemporary Art Network of AIC and also previously served in ECPN or Emerging Conservation Professionals Network. Can you describe your experience working within AIC? The Contemporary Art Network. Yeah, I'm the chair of it currently. So I'll be doing that 2022 to 2023. That has been a really great group. It just started in 2019. And it's really special because we get to come up with what we want to do, like the kinds of the kinds of events we might want to go to, and we get to put them on. And we also can apply for funding to do so. So it's it's really nice. Let's see, there's there's been like a conversations series where different topics get addressed that are important to the field. We also right now have a reading group where we review like different journal articles about like the theory and ethics behind contemporary art conservation, which I especially love because I didn't do very much of that in grad school. And my co-host for that, who came up with the idea, Gabrielle Crowther, she had a lot of theory in her graduate school in her program. So she just has gone and picked some really amazing and insightful articles that the group has gone through. And we, it's just terrific because we get to, we meet over zoom and we talk with like a, an audience of different conservators worldwide who are interested in these issues. And we get to hear about different, just different viewpoints from different practitioners. Sounds fascinating, especially when you can reach such a wide audience and draw from all these different people with different backgrounds. That seems like the perfect environment to have those types of really theoretical discussions. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And also, um, because I'm the chair of of this group, I'm also on the internal advisory committee for um, AIC. And the internal advisory group meets and we actually talk about a lot of the the ethical and theoretical things within our field and how to help AIC get better. So that's been really nice as well. I'd like now to go to some issues, including what are some of the hard lessons you learned when building your business? The hard lessons, I would say, mostly have been around billing, invoicing, and finding and creating a workflow that works for me and my clients. Um, and especially things like that don't charge too much of a fee, like too high credit card fees, things like that. One thing I'll say is if you're manually creating your invoices, double check your numbers before sending out the invoices. 
So like I said, I have to collect sales tax and I very rarely do this, but one time I miscalculated how much tax to collect by the smallest amount, like a 10th of a percent, but it meant that I actually had to pay that tax out of my own pocket. So I had to, I ate the loss. I, you know, I could have gone to the client and said, oh, I'm sorry, I collected the wrong tax, but I wanted to save my own face. So I didn't. So hard lesson there. Absolutely. And what can pre-program and graduate students do now to prepare for starting and running their own practice? Uh, Yeah, there are so many things you can do. Well, okay, you can follow business forums, you can read business magazines and newspapers, Uh, you can follow the conservatives and private practice distribution list, you have to pay a membership, I think it's like $15 a year, something like that to be if you're if you're an AIC member to join that once you've graduated from graduate school, there's a Facebook group, it's called like emerging freelance conservators, where people talk about different things related to being a conservator in private practice. You could work for a private practice as the two of us have both done, an existing private practice that someone else owns. And yeah, like I said, talking to small business owners in other fields can always be really helpful. So, you know, if you've worked for any other business, just think about the things that you've liked doing there, the way that they structure the business. Oh, so if you have downtime, you can do things like start creating a digital presence, like a website. Some people start social media accounts. I have an Instagram actually, that I use, but you could, you could start doing that while you're in school or prior to graduate school. And then while you're still a graduate student, if you know that you're going to be doing a certain type of work, talking to other people who do that work is invaluable. So like I said, I, I did a contract at the National Gallery of Art, and there are certain things you have to do, um, certain places you have to be registered. Um, so I asked the contract conservators I was working with, and they helped me get set up with uh, things like cage codes, which are things that you need to describe the context of your business. You need to tell the government like what what code your work uh, falls into primarily. What is an unlikely but necessary part of running your own business that you think listeners should know about? Probably the amount that like my prior art handling experience has come in handy is is actually surprising to me because yeah, I have clients who don't have their own art handlers or maybe their art handlers just aren't equipped to pack things in a way that I would personally want to do it. So I I actually have ended up like advising on um, packing an installation quite a bit and sometimes even packing the artworks myself when they're when they're leaving the studio. I have one last question for you. Describe an issue that concerns the private sector and paintings conservation. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll say that one issue that affects the private sector that doesn't affect museums really is that we don't have any sort of accreditation in our country. So anyone can be a conservator, anyone can say they're a conservator, you know, it's very complicated to evaluate someone's training and the type of work they do. And it's very difficult to have the expertise to evaluate that. So we have such a range of people doing conservation treatments and advising people on how art should be treated. Sometimes they don't follow what we currently see as best practices. Sometimes they're using really strange materials or they're using materials in a way that is almost like they learned how to use them by a game of telephone. Yeah, just last week I was speaking with another conservator who encountered a collection where everything was coated with a layer of wax on the back for no reason. It wasn't like, it wasn't a lining. I mean, no reason that I know of. It was some sort of attempt at consolidation but it wasn't actually consolidating. And that's an example. Yeah, that's an example where someone is doing a technique they think will work, but they don't necessarily have any theoretical basis behind it, you know, or they might have heard about someone doing something like this 40, 40 years ago, and they're still doing it. I think that's definitely an issue. Like I'm trying to think of solutions. Mm. So a solution could be, we create a criteria of what constitutes an ethical or competent conservator. So what criteria do you think are important to have 
that would distinguish a trained, competent, professional conservator from people who are doing treatments, like you said, where they aren't fully aware of the effects of the treatment that they're doing? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. How do you do that without reading their treatment reports and seeing what justification they put in? Mm -hmm. Like this was done for this reason. Does it work? Is that, is that really a reason that works, you know, according to like the laws of physics and chemistry and physically does the material you've applied, like, is it safe, right? Is it safe for the artwork? Is it safe for you as a person? Like if someone is out there saying, oh, I, I bathed this artwork in xylenes. Well, why, why did they do that? And, you know, there should be some justifications behind why people are doing things. I don't know how, how you would evaluate. It's one of the biggest questions in our field right now, really. It's so tricky because every treatment is different and you do almost need to provide some justification background for, you know, what you discovered during examination, what you found during testing, how you proceeded, but every treatment is so different. And I feel like conservators also will have slight differences in the way mm-hmm. that they treat things based upon their training, you know, based upon the knowledge they've accumulated, their own experiences, even biases towards materials, you know, preferring one rather than the other. So it is hard to standardize. Yeah, it's really it's really difficult because you don't want to set a criteria that unjustly prevents people from being qualified mm-hmm. as conservators because a lot of people come from different backgrounds. But you also don't want to have it where I would argue it is now where there's no set criteria or the criteria mm-hmm. are so loose, there's basically no distinction between professionals. So for example, I know that a lot of I believe it's it for federal contracts that one of the qualifications that they'll have is that you're a member of AIC, but in order to become a member of AIC, you just have to sign right. up for membership. So there's no, like, that's not an effective way of determining your skill or your knowledge. Um, it's just a paid membership. And so that's a problem where people are trying to say, hey, that doesn't actually mean that this person has the qualifications maybe that you think it does. So it is tricky. It's it's a very complicated issue that I don't think has a good solution as of yet. Yeah, agreed. And it's like it's like you say, we we don't want to exclude people from coming from different paths. I personally don't think that we should be only giving like if we were to do some sort of you know accreditation or who is a conservator I don't think that it's only people who went to graduate programs I don't think that people who are only apprentice trained shouldn't be conservators I know a number of apprentice trained conservators who are great who have a lot of skills that I might not have or the same exactly the same skills that I have and it's different in different specializations as you say like there there are so many different facets to conservation wow I'm gonna be thinking on that for a while Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think we all do. Awesome. Well, that is the end of my questions. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the podcast, please visit theprivateproject.com. On the website, you can view a complete episode list, submit your feedback, and donate to support the project. All donations go directly to the interviewees, who take time out of their busy schedules to talk to me. This also incentivizes those not in my network to be interviewed and allows me to bring more diverse content to you. Thank you for your support.